You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. So there's a word we all need to know. Can you say providence? providence. Say to your neighbor, providence. providence. In the biblical sense, it means the governance or the control of God by which in his love, okay, and in his wisdom, he directs all things. Now, now that direction, the way that he leads, is not done out of vindication, out of, out of any type of malice, any type of, you know, insecurity in the way that sometimes as people our motives are, no, no. You see, the way he directs and leads the world, his creatures, his creation, is out of his great, amazing divine wisdom. Also, his amazing agape love for us. So it's a good thing. In other words, this doctrine, okay, emphasizes that God, he is in control. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's okay, he's in control. Now, here's the thing. That's the providence of God. Now, we've also referred or we've also known of this other word called the sovereignty of God, which means really refers to his dominion, okay? It's kind of like a legal claim status to over all things that he's not dependent on anything outside of himself. He never has been and he never will be. Providence means God, he establishes and ordains everything that comes to pass. And that's what our text is talking about today. And quite frankly, this subject of the providence of God that he's orchestrating leads and calls everything, that he plans our lives and that he knows what he's doing, is this providence of God is typically accepted by people as long as it seems that we're getting what we want. Okay? But the moment our life is maybe not turning out the way that we planned or expected, then we throw out this doctrine and we question if God even knows what he's doing. So we say, I just lost my job. God, are you even there? My parents are getting divorced. God, are you even trying? I lost my child. God, do you even care? I got robbed. God, where's your protection? But the moment that we get that promotion, we say, oh, God, you love me. Right? When I'm basking in the sun and during my two-week-long vacation, we say, oh, God, you are good. When I meet the man or woman of dreams, we say, God, you are so faithful. So then, is God absent when times are bad? What happens when everything, everything goes wrong in our lives? Where is God in the midst of our lives, in the midst of, our, of the chaos and the wickedness and the evil? And that's what our text our passage today addresses. So my first point, one of two only, my first point is that God, he even makes wickedness serve him. Get that. God even makes wickedness serve his purposes. You know, last week we talked about God sovereignly working out his plans, and the theme of God's in control of all things is called providence, like I mentioned before. And, and this, is, I think, should be a wonderful truth for us. A wonderful truth in that God, he ordains everything that comes to pass for his good purposes. Now, I want to read something from the Heidelberg Catechism that was written back in 1563. This is how providence was defined, okay? Hear me out. 
The providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. Do you believe that? Now, I think that definition is really simply beautiful. But let's take a step further and apply it into our lives. Can we still say it is beautiful when our lives are going off course? When there's so much suffering and wickedness around us? I mean, how, how does God's providence interface with the reality that wicked people continue to do wicked things? How does God's providence interface with the reality that there are people, and perhaps even you in your own life, where you are blatantly defying rebelling against God? Or there are people around you, or perhaps even in your family? Now here's the beauty of God's providence, and I'll say this. To believe this, in this understanding, in this doctrine, it requires faith. It requires faith, which is why the world, who are, who's so-called open theistic, meaning that the God that they worship, they're willing to worship a God, but it's a God that they're willing to define for themselves. That this world will reject that God has an eternal plan. Uh-uh. They reject the idea that God uses people as his divine agents. no. They believe that God's plan, if there is a God, that his plans are always shifting. That's why a lot of people in this world who are open theistic, they, they really like the horoscopes, right? And every horoscope from every week, from every month and every year, it changes. And they're okay with that because they don't like something that's just set. So they don't like the idea, like for instance, even in Islam, where Allah, he can change his mind. And if he wants to contradict himself, he is able to contradict himself because he is Allah. God of the Bible does not contradict himself, cannot contradict himself. He is set. And so a lot of people will say, well, if plan A doesn't work out, then there's always plan B, and so on and so forth. But you see, for us as Christians, God, he doesn't just have an option A, sovereign will, and an option B, sovereign will. God has one will, and he will uphold his one will with his righteous hands. That's why we can have complete confidence that God is unmovable, that he's unchangeable, that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Amen? That's awesome. That's good. And that means even when wickedness is all around us, that God is not like he goes Sorry, I dropped the ball. Sorry, people. I can't believe I wasn't looking. No, no, no. God can even make wickedness serve his purposes. You get that? That means our God, he's bigger than the wickedness around us. You believe it? He's bigger than the wickedness around us. God is bigger than the Hitlers, than the Stalins, than the Pol Pots. God is bigger than the injustices that we see. He's bigger than even the death and the suffering that happens each and every day. See, this is a truth that goes beyond our finite comprehension. Sometimes you just don't get it. How can that be? And God is saying, I'm God. How can you possibly try to understand the ways in which I work and move? And so we can see 
this biblical example given to us today here in chapter 37. Look at all these providential events that we know that God was leading and orchestrating, but the world will probably say, it's just a coincidence, or it's just luck, or it's just bad luck in Joseph's case. Now, why did Jacob send Joseph to his brothers in the first place? It was so obvious that there was such animosity, such hatred between the brothers and Joseph. It was apparent that there was hostility between the two, that one of the brothers couldn't even acknowledge the presence of Joseph. They wouldn't even say, hello, peace be with you. They wouldn't even look him in the eyes. And yet, here the dad says, hey, can you go like fetch your brothers? Why did, Jake, why did the brothers go down to Dothan? If the grazing wasn't good in Shechem, why didn't they come a little bit closer home? In fact, why didn't they just return home? Doha, Dothan is even further away. And isn't it interesting how Joseph just happened as he was searching around, wandering this vast area, as he was wandering the fields, that he just found someone who knew exactly where the brothers were. And isn't the timing interesting? All of Joseph's searching, traveling, gets him there just in time as this random caravan was passing through, not too early and not too late. And isn't it lucky that Reuben, the older brother, suddenly stopped the brothers from killing Joseph when he first arrived. And what a coincidence that Reuben was not even there when the caravan came. And wasn't it lucky that Judah thought at that moment as the caravan was coming, hey, here's a better idea. Let's sell him. Now, all the events had to happen to Joseph to where we'll later find him in the most, in the, where we'll find him in the end, as most of you guys know. How Joseph became the number two man in the most powerful nation at the time, and he was used by God to save his people from extinction. These are all providential events. This is God's providence at work. Some people say, really? That's providence? I call that bad luck for Joseph right? But as believers, we don't believe in luck, good or bad. We believe in the providence of God. Amen? Now, maybe today, maybe you think that the things in your life that have happened or are happening today are simply results of your poor poor decisions or your foolishness or so on and so forth. And true, that might be why you're suffering and reaping reaping the repercussions today and why you're struggling. Look, Many of the things that are happening in our lives sometimes happens without us having any part in it. And so because we feel like the world is out to get us, we get depressed. We're like, I had no control over this. Why is this happening to me? We get a little discouraged. These things are out of our hands. These things we have no control over. But listen to what God's word is saying to his people today. Because whether it was because of you, your doing, or simply because of life, if you trust that God is God, then you can trust that he is continually God over your circumstances. In your current state of difficulty and confusion, get this, God is using those pains and circumstances to draw you nearer to him. Nearer to him. When we're struggling, it's not about finding answers to alleviate our struggles. It's about clinging closer to Jesus in the midst of our struggles. You get that? That's not about saying, God, what's the answer to this? It's about Jesus, I need more of you in this. Because if Joseph's life is any indication, let me say this, his struggles did not get easier. 
It did not get easier. And this guy we're talking about was a pretty righteous fellow. He did things the right way. He didn't break the law. He was a good guy. He was moral. He loved God. He was faithful. And yet, what do we see? It just gets worse and worse and worse, which is why it's so vital that our hope isn't in the resolution of our problems, but rather our hope is in God, who is Lord over our problems. What is your faith in? What is your greatest desire right now? To just get this thing done? to get some sort of resolution, to get some sort of answer, to alleviate this pain or this thorn in your side? Or is your desire, I want more of Jesus right now? That's plain and simple because God is, that's what God is saying right now. Do you want more of me? Because there is no promise our circumstances will get better. Now look at how bad it got to worse for Joseph in verse 18. Before Joseph arrived, when his brothers saw him, it's so funny, this is an insult. Look at that dreamer. Look at that dreamer. They plotted to kill him. And they wanted to kill him specifically because of the dreams that God gave Joseph. Now, obviously, we know that they didn't kill him. And some might say, well, at least the brothers are being quite merciful because they threw him down a pit. Well, that's good. No, this wasn't just some pit. It was a cistern, kind of like a well, but these things, they go in depth of up to 20 feet. Have you ever been, have you ever been thrown down something up to 20 feet, right? There's no wonder that he didn't die from that. And so the brothers, yeah, mercifully threw Joseph in this deep pit so that instead of, you know, killing, them, killing him themselves, that he would slowly die instead. And in this text, we don't really get a response from Joseph, right? But in Genesis 42, we find that these guilt-ridden brothers, they confess. Joseph was pleading for his life, but we would not listen. This is the evidence. After we threw him in, he was, Joseph, their little baby brother, was begging for his life. Brothers, save me. Help me. I mean, how angry. Do you have to be to be willing to throw your baby sibling into a pit with the knowledge that it is in there that he will slowly die from dehydration, starvation, and even as he cries out for help to only realize, <laughs> here's the thing, this, this point really emphasized just the callousness of their hearts, okay? So they threw him in, and the brother Joseph is crying out for help. They're saying, forget you. We don't care. We want you to die. That's why we threw you in there. And in verse 25, it says, and then so they sat down to eat. They sat down to eat. We threw you. We hope you die. Who's got the food? Who brought the basket? Joseph was begging for his life, begging for mercy. And these brothers, they sit down to have a nice little leisurely lunch. How psychotic do you have to be to just sit down? And how can you have an appetite after throwing someone into their grave to die? And as, as if that's not bad, when the caravan came, they sold their brother as a common slave to be taken off into some foreign country, never to be seen again. But here's the thing, that wickedness didn't stop there. Then they took Joseph's coat. Oh, that coat. Oh, they hated that coat so much. They hated that coat, they dipped it in blood, and then they gave it to their father Jacob. Now here's the thing, they didn't exactly lie to their dad. They just let Jacob draw up his own conclusion. Oh my goodness, a wild animal must have killed my son. They're like, mm, okay, yeah, that sounds, yeah. 
By the way, this is a perfect case of what you reap is what you sow. What goes around comes around. Remember how Jacob deceived his own dad with the skin of a sling goat? And now Jacob is deceived by his own sons. And let me talk about hypocrisy here for a second. When Jacob grieved for the loss of his son Joseph, we read in verse 34 that all the sons had come to comfort him. All the sons, Daddy, we're here for you. These guys are now acting mournful. They were shedding actors' tears. They were wailing and beating their chests. But deep down inside, they were ecstatic. They were on cloud nine. Yes, yes, the stupid, insufferable brother Joseph of ours is now long gone. I can finally breathe. And the deceit doesn't stop there. You see, because their father, Jacob, refused to be comforted, he says, I shall go down to Sheol mourning, meaning this. He says, until I die, until I breathe my last breath, I shall be mourning for the loss of my son. Until I die, I'm going to cry out. And so that means all the years of Jacob, the father grieving, all the years of their father crying out in anguish, all the years of their father who had to suffer day by day, week by week, month and year by year of a broken heart, of a withering soul for over 20 years, these brothers never said a single word. They never told him Joseph was alive. They never felt any conviction, any guilt, any remorse enough to mount up an expedition and go and find and bring Joseph back to their father. I mean, have you ever seen such wickedness, such cold-hearted, calculated, murderous, blatant wickedness? And do you think at that moment, in the mind of poor Joseph, that he knew what was going to happen to him? Do you think when he was thrown into the pit, when he was ignored by his brothers, when he was sold into slavery, when he was falsely accused of rape, then he was thrown into jail and then forgotten about that he knew what was going to happen? Of course not. Joseph didn't know what would happen, but he knew the one who could make things happen, and he trusted in the one who wasn't blind to the things that did happen. You see, he held on to God. He held on to God. You see, if we go to the end of the story, to the last chapter of this book, there the brothers stand at, before Joseph. They really stand at his mercy. And remember, Joseph, he had risen to power in Egypt, second command only to Pharaoh. And there the brothers has come to find food because they're about to die from famine. And in that setting, Joseph gives us the answer to how it is that God can use such wickedness to serve him. He says in Genesis 50, 19, he explains to his brothers the big picture that you and I often forget to see. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many Lives. You get that, folks? He's saying, you intended to harm me. That's the wickedness. But God intended it for good. That's the providence. Look, there's no doubt that we all have asked the question of why in the face of such dark times. And I would never want to minimize anyone who might be standing in those shoes today. 
But we need to understand one thing here. You and I, we cannot fully fathom what is going on in our lives right now. We just can't. It's too mysterious. It's too uncertain. The darkness has not yet passed. We are still in that pit, that cistern. We're still in that caravan about to enter into a foreign land where we do not know the people, where we do not know the language, and where we await unknown challenges. And so oftentimes, all we can ever say in the midst of our struggles, in the face of persecution or wickedness, is saying this, why? Why is this happening? But that's when we need to understand a few things about our dark times. And in this case, about Joseph's dark times. Because while we read of the agony of a father who had just lost a son, and the agony of a teenage boy suddenly enslaved in a foreign country, while we read of the unspeakable loneliness and the longing and the agony of the human heart and these sequences of events that would make anyone bitter towards God, anyone angry at God, anyone rebel against God, we know that there's a beautiful truth here. You see, there's something about God that we can learn about of who he is. He is not mean. He is not vindictive. God has not forgotten his servant Joseph. And God has not forgotten you. God was not punishing Jacob. God was preserving his chosen people in the face of certain disaster. He was preserving a people from whom a Savior was to be born to take away our sins. Get this. In the midst of the wickedness of man, God was keeping the promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the midst of all the wickedness that is around us, God was remaining faithful to what he had promised. Now maybe your life isn't as extreme or challenging as Joseph's, but you realize right now perhaps that your faith in God is actually tied into your circumstances rather than God's providence, this is something that we need to repent of. You see, as followers of Christ, we don't live circumstantially. We live by faith. We don't live by situation, situation. We live by trusting in Him. So we have to humble ourselves because we have to acknowledge that there is no one like Him. He knows the end from the beginning. His ways are unsearchable. His wisdom is unfathomable. God is so awesome that even in the wickedness of the world, it cannot thwart his will. It cannot redirect his purpose. Your life is not a series of coincidences. You know that? But instead are being actively and gloriously led by God to draw you near to him for the sake of your sanctification. In other words, to make you more like Christ and for the sake of his glory. It is good to be his people because then we as his people get to live our lives with peace that the world will never know. Because whether good or bad things happen, we worship a God who is in control and he will not and he cannot ever leave his children. You know, God loves you. Now, <clears throat> if this story is about God's sovereignty, which it is, and his providence, this story is equally about his grace. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, it's about his grace? And that goes to my last point. <clears throat> God saves us through his rejected deliverer. God, he saves us through his rejected deliverer. Now, 
God, he didn't just work out his plan in spite of their wickedness. God, he worked his plan to save them while they were rejecting his deliverer. Think about that for a second. Because this is really the precursor to the gospel, the story of God saving us through his rejected deliverer, Jesus. Now, interestingly, Jesus, was he descendant of Joseph? Good. I'll take your silence as no. <clears throat> and we'll talk about that later. But Joseph is known as a type or forerunner of Jesus. Now, I want to share with you guys the parallels between Joseph's life and Jesus who comes centuries later. Joseph's father sent his brothers to literally see about their shalom. That's what Jacob did. He said, hey, son, go and see about their peace. In other words, Joseph was sent in peace. And so God the Father sent his son to the world not to condemn the world, but to bring peace so that the world might be saved. In the dreams, God revealed his plan involved in raising up or the exaltation of Joseph. And so they hated Joseph because of that. They rejected Joseph because of that. His claim to be God's chosen one, the favored one. And so Jesus was also hated because of his accurate claim that he was sent from the Father to do the Father's will as the Son of God. And so Joseph lived a life of suffering. He was constantly hated without reason, without cause, and yet he still lived with integrity. He still lived with peace and purity, but so did Jesus, but Jesus did it with, perfect, with perfection. And yet Christ, he lived a life of deepening humiliation, and he was so hated without cause. And so in their anger, Joseph's brothers, they plotted to kill him. And so Jesus also came into his own, but even his own would not receive him. And so his own plotted to kill him. God, he worked his sovereign plan through Joseph to save the very people, the brothers who hated him. And so, similarly, in the much, much in the same way, God, he worked his sovereign plan of salvation through Jesus to save the very people who nailed him up on the cross. There is one difference, however. In Joseph's case, he does not die. There is a sacrifice that is made on his behalf. And his father Jacob will later receive his son Joseph back as if from the dead. But there is no substitute for Jesus. Folks, there is a substitute for you, and that was Jesus. He is our substitute. And it was Jesus who paid the full price himself. And it was Jesus who had received back from his who was received back from or by his father. Not as if he were from the dead, but literally from the dead. I hope everyone here is beginning to see how these stories, these examples found in Scripture, is never just about the character. Guys, the Bible is never just about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or, in this case, Joseph. These stories are for the purposes of pointing you and I, the reader, to a greater truth, the great truth of who Jesus is. If we're reading the Bible and the only conviction is that we need to be a better man or a better woman or I need you to live a life of integrity and purity like Joseph, then you read it wrong. But when you read the Bible and the words, they tug at your heart and they draw you closer to Christ with an overwhelming and long and wonderful devotion to the Savior's soul. And if that begins to take place, then you've read it right. The Bible is about Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. Say that with me. The Bible is about Jesus. 
And so our lives should also be about Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus is the one who came to bring us peace. You believe that? There is nothing in this world that will give you the satisfaction that you're longing for. Nothing. Jesus is the one who really was rejected by his own, not just his family, but from the entire world. Jesus was the one who was betrayed, sold for the price of a slave, but Jesus is also the one who has been rejected, hung on the cross, and to anyone who repents and calls upon his name as Savior and Lord, to them he offers salvation. What are you clinging on to today? Who are you clinging on to today? Folks, today God, he reminds us that he is still God through the good times and bad. Do you believe that? He is still God. Through the darkest times of your life where you just want to give up and you just want to give in, God is still God. And he has not abandoned you. He is still working in you. And even when it seems like all we see is wickedness and despair through the example of Joseph, we also can have an unflinching faith where we know that God even uses the difficulties and maybe even the wickedness around us for his greater purposes. But more than that, I pray that from today, a new life of devotion for Christ blossoms in your life. Today, I challenge each of you to live and breathe the beauty of the gospel. It's only Christ who brings peace. It's only Christ who redeems. It's only Christ who forgives. And it's only through Christ and in Christ, God has lavishly poured out his grace to change the wickedness of who you are and who I am into a new creation. You see, it's not about are we Joseph or how can we become more like him. It's about you're the brother and so am I. And yet Joseph extended his grace and mercy. You see, we were the ones who nailed Christ up on that tree. And yet Christ extends his grace and mercy upon you. Receive it. Submit it yourself before him. Deny yourself. And Christ calls you to follow him. Amen? Let's pray. Now, right now, perhaps... There's a cloud looming over your head. And you're having a hard time as to see how God is trying to work in your life in the midst of this darkness. And it's hard to believe that God is even doing something. Maybe it's been a while since you've experienced his touch, his love, his, his faithfulness, or whatever you want to call it. Maybe it's been a while since you've connected with the Lord. So through that distance, you become a little more impervious to really his, his calling. So there's a lot of doubt in you right now. And perhaps right now you also think, well, once I get my life in check, once I get my life in order, then I can come before God. Then God will hear me. That's not true. It is in that mess that is your life, that is my life, right here, right now, that God, he is waiting with arms wide open. And he's saying, come to me. 
And I may not reveal to you exactly why things are happening the way they are. But child, know this, that when you are clinging to me, when you're holding fast to my word, when you're trusting in my promises, you'll know that even the greatest and the biggest waves I hate you will not knock you down. You will see for the first time in your life what true and strong foundation and cornerstone that my son is in your life. You will see that I am God. And nothing that goes against me will ever prevail. Folks, don't you know that he is for you? But this is also an opportunity for you to simply submit yourself, maybe even recommit yourself to Christ, maybe even kind of far away from him. Maybe your devotion life has stopped over the past weeks or months. Maybe worship has been just kind of a Sunday thing rather than a daily thing. Maybe life group and church in itself has become just a nuisance in your life, something that I have to traditionally just commit to but I'd rather be doing this. I'd rather be doing that. Maybe Jesus, yes, is your Savior, but he certainly is not Lord of your life. We must humble ourselves, folks. Haven't we learned by now that we have no control in this world? Haven't we learned by now that we have no control in this life of ours? Commit to him today. Let's pray.